Hello, and welcome to MTC Audio Lab, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. MTC Audio Lab is theatre for your ears, bringing great dramatic texts to life with some of your favourite stage actors. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Bunwarung, the first peoples of country on which these recordings took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. In this first series, you'll hear great Australian speeches performed by some great Australian actors. Directed by MTC Associate Director Petra Khalif, these recordings give voice and recognition to important speeches and texts from our history. You'll hear an introduction to the speeches by Petra at the beginning of the episode. Robert Menzies, Prime Minister of Australia from 1939 to 1966, made a famous speech defining and exalting Australia's middle class as the backbone of Australia. He delivered this famous speech on the 22nd of May, 1942. Robert Menzies, The Forgotten People, read by Mark Cole-Smith. Quite recently, a bishop wrote a letter to a great daily newspaper. His theme was the importance of doing justice to the workers. His belief, apparently, was that the workers are those who work with their hands. He sought to divide the people of Australia into classes. He was obviously suffering from what has for years seemed to me to be our greatest political disease. The disease of thinking that the community is divided into the relatively rich and the relatively idle and the laborious poor. And that every social and political controversy can be resolved into the question, what side are you on? Now, the last thing I would want to do is to commence or take part in a false war of this kind. In a country like Australia, the class war must always be a false war. But if we are to talk of classes, then the time has come to say something of the forgotten class, the middle class. Those people who are constantly in danger of being ground between the upper and the nether millstones of the false war. The middle class who, properly regarded, represent the backbone of this country. We do not have classes here as in England and therefore the terms do not mean the same. So I must define what I mean when I use the expression middle class. Let me first define it by exclusion. I exclude at one end of the scale the rich and powerful, those who control great funds and enterprises and are, as a rule, able to protect themselves. Though it must be said that in a political sense, they have, as a rule, shown neither comprehension nor competence. But I exclude them because, in most material difficulties, the rich can look after themselves. I exclude at the other end of the scale the mass of unskilled people, almost invariably well organized, and with their wages and conditions safeguarded by popular law. What I am excluding them from is my definition of the middle class. We cannot exclude them from problems of social progress, for one of the prime objects of modern social and political policy is to give them a proper measure of security and provide the conditions which will enable them to acquire skill and knowledge and individuality. 
These exclusions being made, I include the intervening range, the kind of people I myself represent in Parliament, salary earners, shopkeepers, skilled artisans, professional men and women, farmers and so on. These are, in the political and economic sense, the middle class. They are, for the most part, unorganised and unselfconscious. They are envied by those whose benefits are largely obtained by taxing them. They are not rich enough to have individual power. They are taken for granted by each political party in turn. They are not sufficiently lacking in individualism to be organised for what, in these days, we call pressure politics. And yet, as I have said, they are the backbone of the nation. The communist has always hated what he calls the bourgeoisie, because he sees clearly the existence of one who has kept British countries from revolution. While the substantial absence of one in feudal France at the end of the 18th century and in Tsarist Russia at the end of the last war made revolution easy and indeed inevitable, you may say to me, why bring this matter up at this stage when we are fighting a war, the result of which we are all equally concerned? My answer is that I am bringing it up because, under the pressure of war, we may, if we are not careful, if we are not as thoughtful as the times will permit us to be, inflict a fatal injury upon our own backbone. In point of political, industrial and social theory and practice, there are great delays in time of war, but there are also great accelerations. We must watch each remembering always that, whether we know it or not, and whether we like it or not, the foundations of whatever new order is to come after the war are inevitably being laid down now. We cannot go wrong right up to the peace treaty and expect suddenly thereafter to go right. Now, what is the value of this middle class so defined and described? First, it has a stake in the country. It has responsibility for homes. Homes material, homes human, and homes spiritual. I do not believe that the real life of this nation is to be found either in great luxury hotels and the petty gossip of so-called fashionable suburbs, or in the officialdom of the organized masses. It is to be found in the homes of people who are nameless and unadvertised, and who, whatever their individual religious conviction or dogma, see in their children their greatest contribution to the immortality of their race. The home is the foundation of sanity and sobriety. It is the indispensable condition of continuity. Its health determines the health of society as a whole. I have mentioned homes material, homes human, and homes spiritual. Let me take them in order. What do I mean by homes material? The material home represents the concrete expression of the habits of frugality and saving for a home of our own. Your advanced socialist may rave against private property even while he acquires it. But one of the best instincts in us is that which induces us to have one little piece of earth with a house 
and a garden, which is ours, to which we can withdraw, in which we can be among our friends, into which no stranger may come against our will. If you consider it, you will see that if, as in the old saying, the Englishman's home is his castle, it is this very fact that leads on to the conclusion that he who seeks to violate that law by violating the soil of England must be repelled and defeated. National patriotism, in other words, inevitably springs from the instinct to defend and preserve our own homes. Then we have homes human. A great house full of loneliness is not a home. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor do they make a house. They may equally make a stable or a piggery. Brick walls, dormer windows, and central heating need not make more than a hotel. My home is where my wife and children are. The instinct to be with them is the great instinct of civilized man, the instinct to give them a chance in life, to make them not leaners but lifters, is a noble instinct. If Scotland has made a great contribution to the theory and practice of education, it is because of the tradition of Scottish homes. The Scottish ploughman, walking behind his team, cons ways and means of making his son a farmer, and so he sends him to the village school. The Scottish farmer ponders upon the future of his son and sees it most assured, not by the inheritance of money, but by the acquisition of that knowledge which will give him power. And so, the sons of many Scottish farmers find their way to Edinburgh and a university degree. The great question is, how can I qualify my son to help society? Not, as we have so frequently thought, how can I qualify society to help my son? If human homes are to fulfill their destiny, then we must have frugality and saving for education and progress. And finally, we have homes spiritual. Human nature is at its greatest when it combines dependence upon God with independence of man. We offer no affront. On the contrary, we have nothing but the warmest human compassion toward those whom fate is compelled to live upon the bounty of the state. When we say that the greatest element in a strong people is a fierce independence of spirit, this is the only real freedom, and it has as its corollary a brave acceptance of unclouded individual responsibility. The moment a man seeks moral and intellectual refuge in the emotions of a crowd, he ceases to be a human being and becomes a cipher. The home spiritual, so understood, is not produced by lassitude or by dependence. It is produced by self-sacrifice, by frugality and saving. In a war, as indeed at most times, we become the ready victims of phrases. We speak glibly of many things without pausing to consider what they signify. We speak of financial power 
forgetting that the financial power of 1942 is based upon the savings of generations which have preceded it. We speak of morale as if it were a quality induced from without, created by others for our benefit, when in truth there can be no national morale which is not based upon the individual courage of men and women. We speak of manpower as if it were a mere matter of arithmetic, as if it were made up of a multiplication of men and muscles without spirit. Second, the middle class, more than any other, provides the intelligent ambition which is the motive power of human progress. The idea entertained by many people that, in a well-constituted world, we shall all live on the state, is the quintessence of madness. For what is the state but us? We collectively must provide what we individually receive. The great vice of democracy, a vice which is exacting a bitter retribution from it at this moment, is that for a generation we have been busy getting ourselves onto the list of beneficiaries and removing ourselves from the list of contributors. As if, somewhere, there was somebody else's wealth and somebody else's effort on which we could thrive. To discourage ambition, to envy success, to have achieved superiority, to distrust independent thought, to sneer out and impute false motives to public service, these are the maladies of modern democracy, and of Australian democracy in particular. Yet ambition, effort, thinking, and readiness to serve are not only the design and objectives of self-government, but are the essential conditions of its success. If this is not so, then we had better put back the clock and search for a benevolent autocracy once more. Where do we find these great elements most commonly? Among the defensive and comfortable rich? Among the unthinking and unskilled mass? Or among what I have called the middle class? Third, the middle class provides more than any other the intellectual life which marks us off from the beast, the life which finds room for literature, for the arts, for science, for medicine, and the law. Consider the case of literature and art. Could these survive as a department of state? Are we to publish our poets according to their political color? Is the state to decree surrealism because surrealism gets a heavy vote in a key electorate? The truth is that no great book was ever written and no great picture ever painted by the clock or according to civil service rules. These are the things done by man, not men. You cannot regiment them. They require opportunity and sometimes leisure. The artist, if he is to live, must have a buyer, the writer an audience. He find them among frugal people to whom the margin above bare living means a chance to reach out a little towards that heaven which is just beyond our grasp. It has always seemed to me, for example, that an artist is better helped by the man who sacrifices something to buy a picture he loves than by a rich patron who follows the fashion. Fourth, 
This middle class maintains and fills the higher schools and universities, and so feeds the lamp of learning. What are schools for? To train people for examinations? To enable people to comply with the law? Or to produce developed men and women? Are the universities mere technical schools? Or have they as one of their functions the preservation of pure learning? Bringing in its train not merely riches for the imagination, but a comparative sense for the mind and leading to what we need so badly, the recognition of values which are other than pecuniary. One of the great blots on our modern living is the cult of false values, the repeated application of the test of money, notoriety, applause, a world in which a comedian or a beautiful half-wit on the screen can be paid fabulous sums, whilst scientific researchers and discoverers can suffer neglect and starvation, is a world which needs to have its sense of values violently set right. Now, have we realized and recognized these things, or is most of our policy designed to discourage or penalize thrift, to encourage dependence on the state, to bring about a dull equality on a fantastic idea that all men are equal in mind and needs and deserts, to level down by taking the mountains out of the landscape, to weigh men according to their political organizations and power as votes and not as human beings. These are formidable questions, and we cannot escape from answering them if there is really to be a new order for the world. The case for the middle class is the case for a dynamic democracy as against the stagnant one. Stagnant waters are level and in them scum rises. Active waters are never level. They toss and tumble and have crests and troughs. But the scientists tell us that they purify themselves in a few hundred yards. That we are all, as human souls, of like value cannot be denied. That each of us should have his chance is and must be the great objective of political and social policy. But to say that the industrious and intelligent son of self-sacrificing and saving and forward-looking parents has the same social deserts and even material needs as the dull offspring of stupid and improvident parents is absurd. If the motto is to be, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you will die, and if it chances you don't die, the state will look after you. But if you don't eat, drink, and be merry, and save, we shall take your savings from you. Then the whole business of life would become foundationless. Are you looking forward to a breed of men after the war who will have become boneless wonders? Leaners grow flabby. Lifters grow muscles. Men without ambition readily become slaves. Indeed, there is much more in slavery in Australia than most people imagine. How many hundreds of thousands of us are slaves to greed, to fear, to newspapers, to public opinion, represented by the accumulated views of our neighbours? Landless men smell the vapours of the street corner. Landed men smell the brown earth and plant their feet upon it and know that it is good. 
To all of this, many of my friends will retort, Nah, that's all very well. But when this war is over, the levelers will have won the day. My answer is that, on the contrary, men will come out of this war as gloriously unequal in many things as when they entered it. Much wealth will have been destroyed. Inherited riches will be suspect. A fellowship of suffering, if we really experience it, will have opened many hearts and perhaps closed many mouths. Many great edifices will have fallen, and we shall be able to study foundations as never before, because war will have exposed them. If the new world is to be a world of men, we must not be pallid and bloodless ghosts, but a community of people whose motto shall be to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Individual enterprises must drive us forward. That does not mean we are to return to the old and selfish notions of laissez-faire. The functions of the state will be much more than merely keeping the ring within which the competitors will fight. Our social and industrial laws will be increased. There will be more law, not less. More control, not less. But what really happens to us will depend on how many people we have who are of the great and sober and dynamic middle class. The strivers, the planners, the ambitious ones. We shall destroy them at our peril. Great Australian Speeches was directed by Petra Khalid, with performances by Sharina Clanton, Mark Cole-Smith, Mark Downey, Greg Stone, Leonie Wyman, and Isabella Yenner. Theme music by Clements Williams. Sound design and engineering by Nick Woolen. Produced by the team at MTC. Enjoyed this episode? To hear more theatrical tales, subscribe to MTC Audio Lab or learn more by heading to mtc.com.au.